Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. This is Erica Adler, shareholder, leader of the healthcare practice at Retzel and Andrus. And today I'm joined again by my favorite guest, Christina Kuda, who's part of our healthcare practice at Retzel as well and a true expert in healthcare law. Welcome, Christina. Good. Hi, everybody. So today we're going to be talking about the fact that some of those waivers and law exceptions that were put into place as a result of COVID are going to be coming to an end or are anticipated to be coming to an end. And we thought it would be helpful to kind of remind everybody about some of these laws that they may have forgotten were temporary and how they might anticipate going back to normal, so to speak. Uh, Christina and I covered briefly um, in a prior podcast, the issue of how stark uh, exception for in-office ancillary related to location interacted with the anti-markup rules. And you can catch that podcast that we did uh, just a few weeks ago. And today we're going to be talking about some other ones that we didn't get a chance to cover. So I'm going to turn this over to Christina and let's just jump right in. So which one should we cover first? So let's talk a little bit about some of the the federal legal blanket waivers. We won't recover um, the Stark waiver in any detail. Like you said, we have a prior podcast on that. But I do want to talk a little bit about some of the relaxed enforcement that has happened over the past few years and how that may be implicated um, when the pandemic declaration of emergency finally ends, which, um, you know, there's talk that it's going to happen happen in January. Obviously, we don't know, um, but I think everyone needs to kind of prepare because it it will be sooner rather, rather than later. So, you know, one of the things that was done, and we've all sort of been, you know, working under this more relaxed regulatory climate over the past couple of years due to the COVID pandemic. And a few things that were done is to try to relax some of the federal uh, regulatory enforcement of healthcare laws in order to be able to make sure that providers uh, weren't hampered or limited in their ability to respond to the um, COVID-19 healthcare crisis. So one of that was, um, there's a waiver for the Stark Law, and and the most significant one is what we call the site of service waiver for the in-office ancillary services exception to Stark. Um, Also, with respect to CLIA, they've sort of relaxed enforcement where you don't need a CLIA registration for in-home reading. So if you're a pathologist and you want to read in your home um, out of concern for, you know, being um, uh, spreading or coming into contact with with COVID-19, you didn't need to get CLIA registration for your actual home where you were doing readings. There's also been some relaxed enforcement of the anti-kickback statute. So over the past couple of years or so, providers have been structuring arrangements and providing services with these waivers in mind. Um, Assuming these waivers will cease when the uh, declaration of emergency is over, and I don't see why they wouldn't cease at that time, Providers really need to look at some of the arrangements that they've entered into or have been a party to while um, the waivers have been in fact and while we've had the COVID-19 emergency declaration to make sure that they would be otherwise compliant when those waivers are no longer in place. 
So that will involve a regulatory review, a review of the arrangement, and also, uh, in many cases, a way to sort of unwind those arrangements or amend them in a way to make sure they are compliant moving forward once relaxed enforcement and the waivers are, are no longer, you know, part of our day-to-day our -day practice. So let's talk about telehealth. How has that changed, uh, you know, since COVID came into effect and how can we expect it to revert back to what it was before or is not all of it going to revert back? Uh, excellent question. So telehealth has become really important to the healthcare industry since COVID. Even prior to COVID, you saw sort of a little bit of a switch where a lot of providers were trying to use telehealth and payors were starting to pay for telehealth services. States were making laws requiring that telehealth services were covered. But prior to COVID, there were generally a lot of specific requirements for telehealth to be considered a covered service by an insurance provider, and that includes Medicare. So generally, patient had to be like at a specific location, um, physicians or providers needed to be at a specific area, there needed to be real-time audio-visual components. Um, during the telehealth session, and sort of a, a few other specifications in order to have telehealth be paid for by an insurance provider. And a lot of times, those rules were somewhat burdensome. And for many patients, it wasn't necessarily reasonable to meet all those requirements. So telehealth wasn't as common or as often used. With COVID, there was a lot of relaxation of those requirements. So not just audio alone is fine. You didn't necessarily need real-time audio-visual. The patient could be located in their home. There was a lot of relaxation, which obviously was important because we wanted people to be able to access healthcare services without maybe physically having to go into office if they had COVID and spreading it around to other people. So because of that relaxation standards, telehealth is really proliferated. And we see it now even not just with you know, COVID appointments or suspected COVID appointments, but there's a lot of different services now that providers are offering, <clears throat> excuse me, with telehealth services. So unlike the waivers for Stark and relaxed enforcement of some of the regulatory laws, there actually is sort of a thought among healthcare providers and those in the, the legal community that, that practice in, in the healthcare area, that some of these telehealth um, relaxation standards may continue. Um, it's cheaper to provide telehealth services. It seems to be working well. Patients love it. A lot of providers love it. In fact, I talked to a provider the other day who told me if he could be 24-7 telehealth with all his patients, he would love it. He would prefer that kind of practice. So there actually is the possibility that some of the waivers put in place for the relaxation standards with telehealth may remain even when the um, declaration of emergency is, is ended. Um, however, we can't be sure of that. And we can't be assured that the exact same standards that are in place now during COVID will be exactly the same as they are when the declaration of emergency ends. So because of that, providers will need to be very careful about continuing to provide telehealth services, making sure they know what the requirements are, particularly for Medicare and then also for the, the, you know, the commercial insurers, um, and that they're providing those services in accordance with those requirements. Otherwise, they are, they're not gonna be paying services. 
Um, additionally, a lot of states relax licensing standards for interstate practice. So generally before providers needed to be licensed in the state where the patient sat during a telehealth visit, um, a lot of that was relaxed again in order to make sure people had adequate access to healthcare during the, the pandemic. So some of those licensing standards um, may not, the relaxation of those standards may not remain in place after the declaration of emergency. So providers need to be very careful that they're meeting all licensing requirements moving forward when they're providing telehealth services to patients that are not um, residents or sitting in the state where that provider is actually licensed. Okay. Yeah, I've heard a lot of positive feedback about using telehealth. I think some doctors would be disappointed if any of it is cut back, but I do think overall we're headed in the direction of, you know, more telehealth rather than less, hopefully, right? As a patient and not a lawyer right now, I love it. I think it's fantastic. So I kind of hope that there are those changes that remain just because I think it is super convenient for people. Right. Agreed. Um, all right, so let's talk about office procedures and how uh, they were implemented specifically during COVID and how they're going to be impacted if things come to an end. Sure. So many states, and you know, we're sitting in in Chicago, so Illinois is the is the state um, you know we're we're most familiar with, implemented a lot of regulatory requirements related to healthcare office practices. So there needs to be masking, the patients need to be masked, like for a while in the Illinois and the Chicago area in particular, anywhere you went, you're required to wear a mask. That has been lifted, but still for healthcare providers, you know, there is requirements for masking, and also there were requirements at a time for testing in employees for COVID, mandating vaccines for healthcare employees for COVID. So these were things that the state sort of required during the pandemic. And Illinois is not unique in that um, at all. Right. But one of the things that you have to think about as an office practice is if those requirements are lifted, if the state or the you know, locality where you are no longer requires masks in a healthcare um, setting, no longer requires testing of employees or vaccinations, do you want to continue those requirements anyway? And that sort of implicates a lot of things. One is, you know, what do you consider potential risks for COVID moving forward? Do you think it's a better safety protocol that your staff remain masked, that you require your patients to be masked? Also, what is the tolerance for patients? You know, a lot of people right now don't really want to mask. So if it's not required, then if you require it as just part of your practice protocol, how's that going to impact your, your patient base? Um, you know, there was the social distancing. Still at the doctor's offices that I go to, a lot of, you know, every other chair in the waiting room is flipped around with a sign that says, don't sit here. So you've minimized seating available in the waiting room. And I've seen times where some people haven't had seats to sit on because of that. So does the office want to maintain that? Do you think that's appropriate just to, again, minimize the spread of COVID? I mean, these are just sort of general office procedures and business considerations that the practice should consider. And if they want to continue with some of these procedures, then they really should put them in writing and make sure patients are aware that it is the procedure of the office 
and explain sort of why it's being done that way. Um, so you have compliance with your patient and they have an understanding of what the expectations might be moving forward. As if there's no mandate, it might be different from office to office. Right. And I guess just a reminder to everyone that every state has different rules. Some of them may not be implementing any of them anymore. So wherever you're sitting, you've got to take a look. And then one other comment is that a lot of issues that came out of COVID, you know, there's the interaction with the public, but there's also uh, employee issues and HR issues. And uh, so you may also want to consult with your local employment lawyer if you come up with these policies, because it's also going to affect your interaction with your own staff you know, when you terminate somebody for non-complying, uh, when somebody feels that they can't be forced to do something under state law, uh, et cetera. So we saw a lot of HR employment issues related to this as well, even though that's a slightly not on topic, but it all kind of affects the office practice for sure. All right. Um, all right. So let's talk about Medicaid patients. I know they're going to be impacted by some of these changes. So tell us about that. Yeah, so Medicaid patients have sort of a, a, a unique position because of COVID. So during the emergency declaration, patients essentially weren't being reassessed for Medicaid eligibility. They wanted people who were eligible for Medicaid to just keep that eligibility again because they needed healthcare services, they needed to be treated for COVID or related um, illnesses that they would have that payor source and ability to afford those services and that treatment. But once the declaration of emergency is over, every state Medicaid agency is required to go through a um, Medicaid eligibility process to determine whether patients continue to qualify for Medicaid. So um, I've not looked recently at the statistics, but there are some public policy institutes that put out pretty good information about this, and they have determined there will be a pretty significant percentage of patients that currently have uh, Medicaid and have been receiving Medicaid during the, the pandemic emergency declaration that are not going to continue to qualify for Medicaid once that emergency declaration ends and they've been reevaluated for, for Medicaid eligibility. And there's some rules on when that eligibility would end. It's not like immediate, there's sort of a transition period. But as a provider, if you have you know, a significant Medicaid population, you need to be very mindful of the fact that these reevaluations are happening and not just assume someone's Medicaid is still in place and is still going to provide um, coverage for the services they're receiving. You want to definitely you know, recheck eligibility and make sure that the patient does indeed continue to have Medicaid before providing services. Um, as we will see a decent amount of patients that are unfortunately going to lose that eligibility after the, the pandemic declaration ends. Okay, great. Yeah, that's a really important point. I think people have just kind of forgotten about that a little bit. So really important. All right. And then, so let's talk about audits. Of course, you and I handle a lot of audits. Um, we've seen lots of our clients, uh, you know, being reviewed uh, for how they've handled themselves as a result of COVID. So speak a little bit to what we can expect going forward. So I, as many people listening know, during COVID, there was a lot of money that was passed out in order to help people respond 
to the, the COVID emergency. So a lot of providers were given money, some in the form of loans, some not in the form of loans. And also they were given opportunities to be able to be reimbursed for services. So if they did COVID testing or vaccinations, there were government programs they could bill. If a patient didn't have insurance to be able to get reimbursed for those services. So we anticipate, I don't know what the full scope will be, but we anticipate at least some review and audit of those programs and how they were used. So if you build to the HRSA program, for example, for COVID testing, you need to be mindful of what, how you build, what documentation you provided, and if you met the requirements, because it's likely you may be one of the providers that will be audited for that in the future. Also, if you received you know, money through um, other programs or forgiveness of loans, you again want to make sure that you documented everything properly. You only took the money if you met the qualifications or requirements to take the money. Um, but I think that there's an opportunity for providers if they maybe learn through their own self-audit, which we would recommend, they necessarily didn't um, bill correctly to a program or they accepted money that they realize now they shouldn't accept it. To be able to rectify that, figure out sort of what happened and, and make some sort of self-disclosure um, in order to be able to explain what happened and you know self-report and return money that shouldn't have been accepted. Um, that carries a lot of favor with the government generally, other than waiting to be audited and have the government tell you, oh, you did all these things wrong. You know, now we want all this money back. Um, so I think people need to be prepared for audits. Again, I think the best way to do that is to be able to self-audit and really look at whether you met the program requirements and did everything you were supposed to do and documented it appropriately. Um, and then you'll be really prepared for an audit once it comes and it won't be such a big stressful situation. Right. And I think just on the topic of audits, I think there's been a lot going on the past couple of years and we haven't really seen the uh, you know intensity of audits that we might that we saw before, whether it's compliance with Stark, anti-kickback, billing, Medicare, whatever it is, because of the you know the resources that have been kind of delegated to deal with COVID-related type issues and legislation, et cetera. I think there's been fewer resources to assign to the regular run-of-the-mill audits, fraud and abuse, et cetera. So would you agree that we can also anticipate that, you know, with less attention on some of the COVID related stuff, although you're absolutely correct, they're probably going to be looking to now catch people who didn't do things right or take advantage. But I would also imagine we're going to see maybe uh, them starting to take a look at some of the things they've been a little bit more relaxed about, even HIPAA compliance as well. Uh, I would expect to see an increase in that. And there's really no time like the present to kind of get your ducks in a row and make sure that you have been compliant in all these different areas. Absolutely. I would agree. And I think there are sort of twofold reasons for why we didn't see as many audits. I think one, um, just limited personnel, like every other industry, there were people that, you know, were laid off or people that were, you know, working from home or sort of, you know, had a different type of job description when COVID was in place. I also think there was sort of a redirection of resources. Money, time, and effort was all redirected over to COVID response. Um, so they didn't necessarily spend as much time or effort looking into other areas they normally would. So I do think we'll get back to a little more state of normal 
in the next year or two. And when that happens, you are going to see ramped up enforcement of audits. I mean, I definitely see a lot of just Medicare billing audits over time. And I haven't seen as many of those over the last year or two. Um, but the last month, I've seen a few more. So I think it's already sort of starting that those resources are being sort of redirected to some of the, the old standbys that the government looks at. And um, I think that's going to continue and going to be more prevalent moving forward. Right. And one other thing I'll mention is that we do a lot of transactional work in terms of selling practices. And you can expect there's going to be a thorough due diligence process of your compliance with these healthcare laws. So they're going to be looking for compliance before COVID went into effect. They're going to be looking for what you did during COVID. And then they're going to be looking to make sure that you went back into compliance. So if you were following kind of the waivers and, you know, we're, we're kind of going with the flow in terms of the relaxed legislation or laws, but then you fail to come back into compliance once they came to an end, uh, that does create an area of uh, obviously scrutiny for a potential buyer. Uh, it can lead to them requiring you to do a self-disclosure or indemnify them for your lack of compliance. So again, you just, you know, compliance can impact so many plans that a practice may have. And that's just Absolutely. one of them. And it's always better to figure out what you did wrong before the guy that buys you tells you what you did wrong. It's not yeah. comfortable. And then it's like an emergency situation. So if you can figure out in advance, much better. Right. Um, all right. Any final thoughts on things? I mean, we only touched the, you know, the tip of the iceberg on the various waivers that were in place, but this is just to give people an idea that they need to look at what they're doing, look at how they changed what they were doing during COVID, um, you know, how things were relaxed a little bit, and then just kind of be prepared to go back to the way it was before, or to see if they need to go back to the way it was before. This is not meant to be all encompassing because we could not possibly cover everything, but any final thoughts on this? Yeah, I think sort of a baseline question for a provider to ask himself or herself is, what, is, what did I change during COVID? So before COVID, what did I do and how did I change it? And then when the declaration of emergency ends or anticipating it's going to end soon, think about, okay, if I change something, look into if you have to change it back. So really, I mean, it, it may be as simple as really just kind of thinking about what you changed and writing a list together and then looking into those issues using, you know, right. knowledgeable healthcare counsel, using your business resources. Like right. And, you know, one other thing I just want to mention is that a lot of because of COVID, people got into telemedicine or took, you know, changed the way they were doing business and very quickly sometimes signed up with vendors to help them achieve those goals. And, you know, those vendors didn't necessarily need to meet the same standards when it came to HIPAA and other types of requirements at that time. But if you signed any kind of contracts during COVID, uh, you may also just want to take a peek at them and make sure that they actually comply with the law. Uh, should the law revert back to what it was before, because you may find that you've entered a contract that is no longer going to keep you in compliance with the law. So despite your best efforts to comply, it may, it may be your relationship with a vendor as well. I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. And, it, and if they don't comply, then look at, you know, how, to, how can you amend, how can you get out of it? Exactly right. And we'll be here to help, right? Absolutely. 
<laughs> okay, well, thanks for joining us, everyone. It's been Christina Kuda and myself, Erica Adler, and this is the Health Law Hotspot. You can check out our prior podcasts, including uh, previous ones related to COVID and changes in the law that we've done recently. And you can check out all of our podcasts at ralaw.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.